the Sodexo Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of Speaker Series. Um, before we meet today's guest, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, the Women Work Network has rebranded recently in line with our Sodexo colleagues around the world. So what this means is that what was SWIFT, as we knew it, is now uh, known as Sew Together, and each of the region's networks are gender networks are also called Sew Together with the region name. So we would be, we are Sew Together UK and Ireland. So I suppose it's now a Sew Together UK and Ireland speaker series. But anyway, that's the admin over. Now let's meet our guest. I'm really delighted to be joined today by the Chief Executive Officer of UK Hospitality, Kate Nichols. Kate, hello. Hi. Hi, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Um, obviously, your office is just around the corner, so hopefully it's not a, not a long a long walk to come round. No, it's very close, very easy. Brilliant. And um, so I thought what we'd start off by talking about is because um, obviously, well, I joined Sodexo about five, six years ago. Mm. Um, and back then we remember the, the British Hospitality Association, the BHA. And I know that we did a lot, of, uh, we were a member and did a lot of activities with them. And obviously, the BHA merged with the uh, ALMR, mm-hmm. as it is, the uh, Association of Licensed... Multiple Retailers. Multiple so Retailers. it's a bit of a mouthful. We now we've got it down to UK Hospitality. So it's a simple name that does what it says on the tin. Excellent. Okay. And can you just talk me a bit through um, that merger and how it, how it came around? Sure. Well, we had two main trade bodies, one that looked after hotels, restaurants, fine dining, and contract catering, food service management, and the other that sort of looked at more consumer-facing, um, eating-out business pubs, bars, restaurants, nightclubs. Underneath them, though, we had a couple of other trade bodies that were looking after specific segments. We had the Restaurant Association, we had BIDA, which was looking after nightclubs, um, and it was a bit of a confusing mass for government to know who they should be speaking to at any one time. Um, And so about this time last year, the two boards of BHA and ALMR came together to see how more effectively we could work together to influence government and really get the credit that hospitality deserves. And it became rapidly rapidly apparent in those discussions that the issues that the two separate bodies were facing were exactly the same. Our members' concerns were exactly the same, and actually cooperation very quickly turned into collaboration and a merger, um, so that we could bring together in one place one united voice for the whole of hospitality, from single independent businesses right the way through to the largest national chains, covering every facet of hospitality. Um, and that took effect in May, in April and May this year. We now represent over 700 member companies, 75,000 outlets, almost three million employees. And so when we go to government, we are one voice at the table um, and that's given us tremendous leverage when we're talking to government and ministers and also talking to the media and the general public about what a fantastic industry hospitality is that we're now actually finally getting the credit we deserve and the place at the table that we deserve to make sure that our needs and concerns are recognized. And when you're going to the government to talk about these concerns, I mean, what are the what are the main challenges that you that we have at the moment? What are you what are you talking to the government about? Well, you can't really escape at the moment talking to government about anything other than Brexit. Um, that is an overarching concern, has been for for two years, and and we're continuing to be the voice of the sector. And when when we do go to government, it is as one of six business organisations. So, you know, there, there are there are only six people who are going. When it comes to food, there are only four organisations that are going. And so hospitality is right there at the heart of policy and decision making. So aside from Brexit, the issues that unite the whole of the sector, whichever subsector of hospitality you come from, are employment costs and the costs of uh, the on costs of training people, upskilling people. But as a, an aside from that, it's about talent, access to skills, access to um, labour, and making sure that we can attract the 
uh, individuals we need to make sure our businesses can continue to grow. Uh, the costs of employment detract from that. Um, it's the costs of doing business in terms of um, business rates, less so for food service management, but for the, the hospitality outlets that are high street facing, that's a particular issue of concern, business rates. And then the third one is uh, the social and uh, sustainability costs that the government is looking at pushing onto business. In the food service management side, that's around food safety, food hygiene, food labelling, allergens, all of that uh, additional cost burden that the government is looking at imposing on businesses um, and trying to find a way through to make sure that we can deliver on that sustainability and food safety agenda without and causing unnecessary costs. Okay, so um, obviously at the start you mentioned Brexit, mm. um, and I thought, as is the Stexo Diversity Inclusion podcast, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of under the impression that that Brexit is is, is sort of the, the opposite of being diversity inclusive, but I, I don't know, that's probably not a view that everybody shares. I mean, what what sort of impacts on diversity inclusion do you really see Brexit having? Well, I think Brexit itself shouldn't have an impact on diversity and inclusion. Um, it will be what migration system we have in place afterwards, which might restrict the flow of workers coming into the country and therefore reflect the diversity that we might have from different ethnic groups. Um, however, I think Brexit, I'm always trying to look for the silver lining. And I think Brexit could be quite helpful in terms of refocusing people's attention on the diversity and inclusion agenda, because Sodexo obviously takes a really leading position on this, um, but not everybody in the hospitality sector does. And the free flow of labour that we've had has meant that there hasn't had to be the focus and attention on diversity and inclusivity that we perhaps deserve. So I'm hoping that Brexit will shine a light on the need to have policies to promote diversity, promote inclusivity, to make people think about how they attract a more diverse workforce, whether that's older workers, we are going to see structural change in retail and distribution, so we're going to have a lot of returners to work from those sectors that will need to be upskilled. Um, whether it's about neurodiversity, um, where you're looking at people with Asperger's, autism, um, a range of learning difficulties and also dyslexia, dyspraxia. You know, we provide a route through for rewarding careers for a wide range of people who would otherwise not have the skill set to be able to, to work in certain sectors of the economy. Um, but also then looking at uh, disability and all of those kind of issues. And I think the, the thing that we've got about hospitality, we are the ultimate meritocracy. We can take anybody from any walk of life, any skills level, and we can find a role for them and not only find a role for them, but a rewarding and fulfilling role and upskill them further. Um, so I think it's a real opportunity for hospitality. And if we look at it in the right way, it might take us, uh, bring us further forward as a sector in promoting inclusivity. So coming back to um, your role at UK Hospitality, mm. you're, you're CEO now, and obviously you became CEO when the when the merger happened mm. last year. Um, so I just want to really talk about, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of um, CEOs and female CEOs coming onto the onto the podcast. And so we, you know, we always really, really want to hear about your career journey and uh, and how that came about. I mean, do you want to start by telling us about, a bit about what your how you became CEO in the first place, or uh, how I became just, CEO of UK Hospitality? Yeah. Um, well, it was a highly competitive process, um, and so you know, the, the, you had two existing organisations. I was chief executive of the the trade body that looked after pubs, bars, and restaurants, so I was the voice of the other half of the industry, if you like. Uh, when we agreed to do the merger, we went out and had a, a very competitive process, including the two existing CEOs. But we also went out and, and looked at um, external candidates that we benchmarked to make sure that when we took this merger forward, 
we had the best people um, running the trade association um, and I was fortunate to be chosen uh, and, and I'm very proud um, to be the voice of the sector because I've worked in the sector for 25 years. Um, I'm hugely uh, supportive of what the sector is trying to do um, and I'm a huge champion for the sector so I feel it's a real privilege to be able to go out there and speak on behalf of the three million people who work in our sector and try and get them the voice that they deserve and the recognition that they deserve um, so I see, take it as a real privilege prior to that I'd been chief executive at the ALMR for four years um, and I'd worked at the ALMR for a, a total of 10 years um, primarily on the lobbying side so my background is very much lobbying politics and hospitality so I'm fortunate one of those people who fell into hospitality didn't have it as a planned career and have been able to find my forte I suppose in, in bringing together all the things that I'm passionate about. So talking about planning your career, I mean, when you were doing your exams at school, I mean, what were you, what were you thinking then? What yeah. were your sort of uh, uh, career ambitions? My career has not been planned at all, so I'm not really a great example of somebody who thinks it carefully through and plans it. However, um, I am an example of somebody who, who makes the best of what they've got to do. So, I, I mean, I grew up in a mining village in Durham. I went to the typical Alistair Campbell had castigated them as being sink comprehensive in the north um, and I was the first in my family to go to university um, and I'd been inspired age 12 by Kate Adie reporting on the SAS um, Iraq uh, Iraq or Iran um, the, the embassy the siege embassy, yeah, Iran embassy the Iran embassy yeah. yeah so I'd been inspired by her another fantastic female from the northeast um, who had made it on a national stage I wanted to be a journalist I am a frustrated journalist um, but I graduated the first year of the graduate recession in 1991 and was told to go away and get a year's worth of experience and then come back and do my journalist training and I fell into politics and I never went back um, and then it's it's evolved from there as to to what I've done. Okay, so when you say you fell into politics, I mean what what did that what did that actually look like? Is it how how do you fall into politics? Uh, be because I was looking for what relevant experience could I do for a year before I went back home to the northeast and worked for the Newcastle Journal and did my apprenticeship as a journalist. Um, I spotted an advert to be a researcher in the European Parliament, applied and got the job and loved it so much that I just abandoned all sorts of going back and doing journalism. Um, and, and I was very fortunate to work for a, a Euro MP who uh, looked after and was uh, what's called a rapporteur in, in the European Parliament. They are the people who drive forward legislation and write the legislation, who looked at a whole range of food issues. Um, and so for three years, I worked in the European Parliament. She also was a great champion and, and sort of told me that I was underemployed and therefore should go also go and work in the um, House of Commons, get some experience in British politics and sort of pushed me to do a whole load of other things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. But because I worked on all of those policies to do with food additives, flavourings, colourings, I was approached by the hospitality industry and lobbied by the industry who were trying to change that legislation. So one of my proudest claims to fame is that at that time, we saved the prawn cocktail crisp. Um, oh, right. oh, and we a, saved uh, uh, cam caramel in beer, which gives beer its colour. We saved the colour in British sausages to make them pink. So were these things that the, the, the sort of the new European Union was looking to... They were implement. looking at harmonising all the food labelling and food standards legislation. And in Britain, we were further ahead than anywhere else in the EU about banning additives and flavourings and colourings in food. Um, however, when the European Union was looking at it, they were looking at harmonising a lot of different things uh, and therefore sometimes British 
classic British products like prawn cocktail crisps mm. would have fallen foul of the legislation. Um, so we were being lobbied quite heavily by the food industry who were coming over to Brussels to say, if you do this, canned peas are going to be grey, not green. Mm. Um, we won't be able to use this flavouring. Okay. in a product uh, and that's how I got into hospitality because I was heavily lobbied by the beer industry and by Whitbread who then recruited me to join them and be their in-house government relations person for hospitality which is how I, I came to work in hotels and catering and pubs. So this has been around the time of the Maastricht Treaty is that what you were working on? The, yes so, I did so I did work in the Maastricht Treaty. Sort of like the, you know we're actually getting close to Europe and now we're looking sort of getting further away Um, and actually that's probably why I'm a little bit more relaxed than some of my colleagues about Brexit because I've I've been in these negotiations before and I I was part of the European Parliament delegation that was lobbying on Maastricht so um, I've I've seen how it goes down to the wire and it's it's the 11th hour when they finally come up with a solution Um, it just doesn't make for good business planning and confidence for investment sure okay okay so then you got your job for Whitbread and you were you were then in the in the food service industry Mm. I mean, when you look at the food service industry now and what it was like back then, what are the what are the big sort of changes? What was what was the difference about it back then? Or what do you think's changed the most? I think I mean that there's a couple of couple of obvious things. I mean, the explosion of casual dining. Um, and I actually don't think our sector gets credit for the dynamism and the innovation that it that it has in place. But the transformation you've seen in eating out um, across the the entire high street but also more generally and our reputation as a nation of really high quality food producers manufacturers retailers and um are the you know being the eating out capital of the world you would never have envisaged that happening back in the 1990s um equally the transformation that you've got in in hotels so when i started working in hospitality it was dominated by a small number of large companies and the plethora of independents that we've now got entering into the marketplace across all of the ranges, whether it's pubs, restaurants, um, contract catering, food service management or hotels. Um, we're a very diverse and flourishing sector. Yes, yeah, I remember being living in Nottingham at, when I was at university in the in sort of turn of the century and there was a cafe in West Bridgeford that had tables and chairs outside and we all, it was so different then to yeah. have that alfresco dining. Totally, totally. And when I worked at Whitbread, Café Rouge was was just in its infancy. Whitbread had just bought it. Um, Equally, you know, if you look at the transformation in that company... um, I, I left Whitbread in 1998, just as it was really developing Premier Inn, just as it was really developing Costa, and that whole revolution about what could you, what you could have on the high street and where these um, premises could open was really just taking shape. Equally, if you look at a company like Weatherspoons, again they transformed the high street, taking over empty pub, empty um, banks, and transforming them into pubs, bringing the high street regeneration that we've seen. A lot of that is driven by hospitality businesses. And so um, you say when you left Whitbread, where did you go after after Whitbread? What happened then? I went and joined a, a, a communications agency. So it was a, one of the largest independent public, public affairs agencies that was looking after a range of clients. I set up their consumer affairs division um, and was lobbying for a range of trade associations and other large consumer brands trying to get their message across to government. That's when I first came across trade associations, which I'd never really dealt with before, um, and the unique challenges that they have in terms of being the voice of a sector to government, but also feeding back and replaying messages that 
government is giving to their members and helping them to do that was a, a unique skill set that I started to develop in that time. Um, I then, um, having sat and, and looked as a director of the company, realised what proportion of the fee income was being personally generated by me and decided I would go and do that for myself. So I am a, probably a typical entrepreneur in hospitality that I went and set up my own business um, and then scaled that back when I had children and worked for the ALMR as as part of that after having children and the rest is history okay so something we, we talk about quite a lot is um in terms of developing developing some members of, of uh, so together for example the network mm. is developing like our personal skills and one of them is about networking mm. so you know hearing you speak now um obviously you know working in public affairs having your own agency working for yourself um you've obviously you know when you walk into a room full of people um you you know, do you, is that a comfortable thing for you to do? Do you always find that like a, uh, a straightforward thing to be able to walk in, just start striking up a conversation with somebody, or is it is it is it something that takes a bit more thought? You think it, it takes a bit more thought, and I think anybody <coughs> who um, says that they go into a room full of people, particularly a room where they don't know anybody, um, and stands on the threshold of that door and thinks, "Oh, this is an easy, this is breeze," and just walks in and does it. Anybody who, who thinks that that's easy, I think, is lying. I think everybody, however good you are at networking, finds it quite a daunting challenge and you have to take a deep breath and you have to go in. It's the same as speaking and public presentations and, and being on stage. And, and, you know, all of those things are skills that you can learn. I don't think they come naturally to, to many people. Um, and I think instinctively we struggle to be able to, to walk through that door and introduce ourselves. Once you've done it, it's all all right. But finding that mechanism through, and that's why I think networks are so important and building networks are so important just so that you can recognize a friendly face. As humans, we're programmed to look for the person who looks like us and who who responds like us. And so therefore, um, you know, in my the early stage of my career, I had an advantage because I've worked in heavily male-dominated industries. And therefore, you would have an instinctive relationship with the only other woman in the room that you came across. Um, and it was like that back in the 1990s. Yeah, ALMR did a, a set up 20 years ago a Christmas lunch. Um, it now caters for 1,300 people. Back then there were 700. And you used to wave across the room at the other woman in the room. Um, so there is an advantage built in there. And last night I was at number 10 talking about Brexit. And again, there were 50 people in the room, all business leaders. There were about four or five women. It was therefore very easy to introduce yourself to the other woman in the room that you could talk to um, when you didn't recognise anybody else. Um, so, but, but it doesn't come naturally and it isn't easy. You have to work at it and, and develop those skill sets. So a lot of people like you have, have come on and talked about, you know, you go into a room and it's full of men and there's a couple of women. Um, and obviously people have stories and anecdotes of, you know, diversity and inclusion and maybe where it's negative negative sort of experiences mm. or positive ones. Have you got anything? Obviously working in food service in the 90s, it sounds, you know, it was very male-dominated. Um, you know, did you ever over, have to overcome any any barriers? Um Yes. I mean, my, my classic one was when I announced, I mean, this was in politics rather than food service. I, I announced that I was getting married to my boss in the House of Commons, whose immediate reaction was that I would probably stop working because you didn't work when you were married. Now, that sounds like something out of the 1950s, but it was only 1994. Um, however, when I got into hospitality, um, I've been really fortunate throughout my career to have a, a large number of champions who've really supported people not necessarily looking at it from a gender perspective but looking at how do you push through young talent 
And how do you support young talent? Um, and I think you know people talk about mentoring schemes, and I think mentoring is hugely important. But you actually need champions in all of those businesses to identify the people who should go for mentoring. And the most benefit I've had is from the people who've decided and taken it upon themselves to be informal mentors for me, some of which I've only realized years after that that's what they did. Um, but I think it's that creating that uh, warm climate and you know yes there have been times where I've had some real horror stories um, and I make myself sit on my hands when I go into a meeting and I stop myself from going and making cups of tea for people because that's my nature is to be a bit of a feeder my friends always laugh at me because I am always the one giving them cakes and making sure and, and it's just simple tri- tricks like that that if you are the woman in the room particularly if you are a young woman in the room you will be expected to do that and I've, I've sat on stage in front of a whole group of MPs where some men in the audience have done that um, and, and they've sort of expected me to arrange the drinks and the teas and the coffees you just have to make yourself stop doing it um, uh, and you know but equally okay. I've had some fantastic experiences where people have been hugely supportive and also if, if you are working in a heavily male dominated industry if you are a woman you, people tend to remember you whereas you can blur into the background of a sea of suits if you are a, a man and there's 50 men of this and one woman you're going to stand out yeah I find that because I walk in the room and I'm just a, blo- <laughs> a bloke in a suit and a, and a white shirt luckily I'm quite tall so, yeah. so people can see me above um, you mentioned coaching and mentoring there as well, and you've had some some sort of champions or sponsors yes. throughout your career who have. Who've, I mean, have you ever have you done any? Uh, are you coaching people now? Have you got any any mentees, or are you are you? Is this something you're looking at at the at the association? Yeah, I don't have any mentees at the moment, just simply because um, if you're going to do it, you need to do it right, and you need to be able to devote a lot of time. And my time at the moment is 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 a bit constrained, so I don't at the moment. But what we have done is to set up a new mentoring scheme as part of UK hospitality, because there's a couple of things that we identified um, when we were looking at diversity and. And we particularly focused on gender um, because it is still an issue. Um, We identified the fact that um, women tend to, and it was some research that was done with Odgers, women tend to see it as a negative if they are told by a boss or told as part of a personal development review that they should have some mentoring. They don't tend to see it in the positive light that men see it. Um, So they see it as negative. They don't put themselves forward for it. um, And they don't tend to think of themselves as, as being the caliber of person that could be subject to mentoring particularly if it's taking them to c-suite so we set up a new mentoring program which is looking at group mentoring and is also looking at speed mentoring so that it demystifies the process and takes out the stress and strain of it. Um, So we launched that um, in October um, and we'll have a series of events going through next year where we can look at the the women who need some little bit of extra help to get them up to C-suite level um, and we can look at bringing them together in a networking environment so that we can introduce them to other women. We've got 70 to 80 mentors from the industry who are willing to give of their time. Um, We will do a group session and then we'll do, as I say, it's more like speed dating. So people can come and have some quick, short, sharp advice and, and not feel committed to six 
mentoring sessions and we're hoping that that will be helpful and, and will help to broker some more people in and to introduce them to mentoring and again I, I go back to the point that it's really vital that you've got people who are champions who will then push those women forward um, so as well as the people who are giving their time from the companies to say that they'll mentor them if they want to on a one-to-one basis it's just that supportive network around that are saying we think you deserve it and we're pushing you forward to, to do it so that the woman doesn't have to make the decision either to put her hand up and say I need some help or to 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 be forced to go on it and have that resentment now you mentioned earlier that you um you took time out to have children yes yes about six weeks about six weeks <laughs> so this is the thing so um so this year we set up or some some of our members set up a Sodexo working parents group which is like yeah. a private Facebook group where um you know employees can can apply to go on there and then they can share advice and tips and I mean one of the things a lot of the, the common themes that, that that come up on there and one of them is um, when you're taking leave, it's like people's perceptions of you in the workplace, like your line manager gives you a bad perception or expects you to, you know, when you come back to work, not to do much work or to have different priorities. I say in inverted commas. Uh, one of my colleagues would hate that word because um, basically you, you still want to do your job and you still want to do everything. I mean, when, when you uh, took parental leave, what was your experience of doing that? Well, I was quite fortunate because I worked for myself and I deliberately, that was the only time I'd ever planned anything in my career. I deliberately did that so that um, I could continue to work because I knew I would go mad if I took any extended period of time off. Um, And uh, it meant that I could be a freelancer. That also meant that I could fit the work around the children um, and I could have some time off and not have to work to a boss. Um, So I appreciate that my experience is a bit unique um, in the sense of not being in a a company. Um, However, I think there's an awful lot of perception that people put on themselves rather than it being reality. This idea that... um, you know that people are going to think less of you or think that you're less committed to your job or there's some problem in asking for leave I think we put that on ourselves sometimes I'm not saying that it's not out there mm. um, but I think the you know the I, I caught myself a few times saying I was going to the dentist or saying I was going to the doctor rather than saying I was going to finish work and I wanted to have you know sort of a couple of hours off in order to go and see the school play Um, and actually the minute you open about it and say do you know what I need to go and see this or do that and I'm prioritizing that um, it, it becomes a more open dialogue with colleagues and also, I think that's in, it's incumbent upon any of us who are in leadership positions to make sure that we're being open and honest about what we're prioritizing as well. So I will always make a thing of it with my team that I'm, I'm now going because I need to go and pick up children. And that gives permission to everybody else who's also worried about picking up children or doing something towards childcare that actually I see it as an important thing and I don't see it as being any less of their job. I also think what we need to tackle is the sort of slightly macho culture that can develop in some companies, not all, where, you know, your your worth is measured by the number of hours you're sitting at your desk. Actually, again, it's a mindset thing, If and I say it to my team, your work hours are 8 till 3 or 10 till 4 or 9 till 5, whatever. If you feel you need to be staying longer than that, 
then you're not very productive and you're not managing your time very well. So I don't see it as a badge of honour that you're still at your desk at six o'clock. I see it as a bit of a sign of failure that you haven't managed to get your work done. And that's where I think you can give credit to working parents because they are hugely productive because they are totally time limited. Um, they can't get in until after a certain time and they can't leave past a certain time. So they make sure they get their work done in that fixed period of time. So it's an object lesson to all of us. Um, and I think as well, you know, it, it's little things to make things easier um, people who don't have children tend to forget about times that people need to be in so one of the classic cases I, I was working with the mayor of London and he was wanting to do an, an event around working women and skills and, and women and set it at nine o'clock um, a breakfast meeting at nine o'clock which is is fine for a lot of people but for some people who've got childcare commitments and then need to travel in that prohibits them from attending and that's obviously done because he has a gap in his diary that that's the only time we can do it but there are little things like setting breakfast meetings at certain times or you know doing the after drinks uh, after work drinks um, for team bonding that immediately detracts from a large number of people and it's not a gender thing this is about men being also being able to have a work-life balance and being also able to manage their family and the more we have that open debate and dialogue the easier it is for everybody to manage fantastic thank you okay. um and so one last thing uh before we go um so we talked a little bit about the challenges of the sector at the moment and obviously we've got this big uh, political thing that's happening at the moment you might people might have heard of but um, I wondered looking into the future of hospitality what are you seeing you know are you seeing anything past next March or past um, or do you think everything's going to fall into place and will what are the big challenges we've got coming up in 2019? I think the, the, there's three big challenges that we've got coming up in, in 2019 irrespective of what happens with Brexit um, we are at a time of almost full employment and therefore we have got labour shortages and the war on talent is only going to um, step up a gear and those companies that are able to look at policies that make them more diverse, more inclusive are going to win on that war of talent and it's going to be ever more important to focus on retention um, as that comes in. And you know, when, when politicians talk about recruiting, replacing EU workers with UK workers, we've got 200,000 fewer 18 to 24 year olds entering the job market by 2020. So all of us collectively have that challenge of what are we going to do to retain the talent and look at talent in a different way. Um, the two other big challenges that are, that are coming down the track, um, the power of television, the sustainability agenda. Um, David Attenborough with Blue Planet, Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall is about to do another focus on plastic. But that idea about what are our businesses doing in order to promote the sustainability agenda and to be leading the sustainability debate. Um, Sodexo is, is right at the forefront of that with um, the you know turning waste into wealth and how do we manage food waste, how do we manage plastics. That is going to be a huge agenda. And then I think the, the, the health agenda will also kick off in 2019 that will be a challenge for all of us who, who feed the nation um, to make sure that we've got even more robust allergen controls, labelling controls, the, the pressure to give the public more and more information um, and to promote a healthy agenda will, will only exacerbate. Kate, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming in. Um, I hope everyone, I hope you all enjoyed that uh, listening today and we hope to see you next time. This podcast was produced by volunteers from the Sodexo Employee Network Groups. Email us on diversityandinclusion.uk at sodexo.com and follow us on Twitter at sodexo D&I.